Well, good morning, everybody. So good to see you. I simply, it's just hard to believe that we've come to an end of yet another great study in Amen. And uh, to just piggyback on Jerry's prayer, I would love for us to take a moment just to thank our Amen committee, our leadership, and our kitchen staff in the back. Can we just thank them together right quick for a wonderful year? We love you guys. Um, also, um, to piggyback on what Lon said, please read that letter on your, on your uh, tables. We're really excited, George and Todd and myself, about this new study we'll be doing starting in January. We've entitled it Men After God's Own Heart, Scripture's Vision of True Manhood. In a world where there's so much confusion and so much distortion of what manhood ought to be as God intends, what a timely study, I think, for us to gather together. So I encourage you to invite your neighbors, your sons, your grandsons, your friends as we come look at God's Word together to see what it means to be a man after God's own heart. Now this morning, as we prepare for Christmas, uh, we only have one more week of shopping, gentlemen. Um, so <laughs> I got a lot of work to do. Maybe we can go together. Walgreens, I think, has some good stuff. Um, but we're about to celebrate uh, the incarnation together, and I think it's uh, just fitting that the last passage uh, that we dwell on this morning is where the incarnation leads, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, 20 verses. It's going to take me about 90 seconds to read, but in it, we see the event upon which all history pivots. It's the fulfillment of God's eternal plan. It's the event that has changed the world forever, that gives meaning to everything that we do, that gives purpose to us, unbelievable purpose, that gives hope to suffering people and God's people indescribable joy, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us read it together. Matthew chapter 28, starting in verse 1. Hear the word of God. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he is risen as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And they went, when they assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ear, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spreading among the Jews to this day. Now, the 11 disciples, they went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but, but some doubted. 
And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful. I'm so grateful for this study that you've given us, where we have come together as your brothers, as your men, to study your word. Not that we would simply be informed, but transformed by it, by the power of your spirit. And so, Lord, we pray that you would descend upon us once again this morning, and that you would show us marvelous things in your word, and that we would forever be changed, and more and more like your son. We pray these things in the blessed name of the risen King Jesus. Amen. Uh, There are over 60-some-odd instances in Matthew's gospel where he uses that word, behold. In chapter 20, we just heard a lot of them. About 60-some-odd instances throughout the entirety of his gospel where he uses that word, behold, or an equivalent of it. Now, in most instances, when we see that word, behold, or come and see, it's an indication for the reader to stop in your tracks and just take a moment to consider and to contemplate and observe the thing that had just happened and what was being said. To mull it over. There's there's deeper meaning, just think about it. But in other instances, as we see in verse 2, it's a literary device that's used to tell us that something unexpected has happened. It tells us suddenly, out of nowhere, something unexpected, very important, has happened. Behold. Matthew tells us something very unexpected happened that first Easter Sunday morning in that graveyard. Behold, brothers, something important, something startling, something unexpected has happened. It's a literary device. It reminds me of something that J.R.R. Tolkien uses in his writings. C.S. Lewis does the same thing. Uh, Tolkien coined a term called uh, euocatastrophe. Those of you who enjoy Tolkien, you've noticed this in many of his writings. A catastrophe. it's the opposite of a catastrophe. We know what catastrophe means. It's when someone's life or a story ends in tragedy and despair and hopelessness. catastrophe is the opposite of that. It's when everything seems hopeless, when our circumstances could not become more bleak, in that moment precisely, hope emerges. This is what he says. It's a decisive act of grace that overcomes guilt, that restores all that's been lost, and sets things right. A UO catastrophe, hope emerging, overcoming darkness, overcoming evil. C.S. Lewis calls it the turn of joy, or rather the joyous turn. It's the same thing, and we see that in their writings, and all of our favorite stories by C.S. Lewis, and that's why so many Christians love them. Now, Tolkien said that he is sure to use these in his stories because he wants to give a shadow to his readers of the two historical, the two greater catastrophes that have happened in history in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The first one is the incarnation, which we're about to celebrate. When Jesus Christ was born, when God took on human flesh, he reversed the tragedy of our first parent, Adam's original sin. He took on our humanity. The second catastrophe, the greater one, is the resurrection. When God reverses the tragedy of his son's death. Both of which are only explainable by God's intervening grace. 
The point is, brothers, on that first Sunday morning, a yield catastrophe took place, a real one. All hope seemed lost. Not just for those women, not just for those disciples, but for the entire cosmos. All hope seemed lost. Circumstances could not be bleaker. But Christ rose from the dead. And because of that, everything has changed. Everything. And there's two things that Matthew wants us to focus in on in these 20 verses. As a result of the joyous turn of Christ's resurrection, two things happen. One, those who believe on him receive great joy. Not just happiness, not superficial happiness that that flees from us due to unfavorable circumstances, but deep abiding joy. Secondly, we receive a great purpose. I don't care what your job is, if you're retired or if you're on the low end of the totem pole at work. I don't care if you think your life is insignificant. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have been given the greatest purpose you could ever possibly imagine. So as we look at these 20 verses, those are the two things I want us to look at. The great joy and the great purpose that the resurrection of Jesus Christ gives his people. All right, so in verses 1 through 10 and verses 11 through 15, we see the great joy of the empty tomb. The Christian life is marked with joy. Again, not a superficial happiness, but a deep abiding joy. We are to rejoice greatly. The Bible tells us that the Christian, uh, Paul says this when he's describing life in the Spirit or the fruit of the Spirit. The first aspect that he talks about is love. Our lives are to be marked by love. The world will know that we are God's people the disciples of Jesus Christ, in the way that we love one another. We are marked by love. The second thing he mentions is joy. We are marked by joy as those who know Jesus, truly know Jesus, who believe in the gospel, who wake up every morning living in light of the fact that he rose from the dead. Our life is marked with joy. We see that in the principal character in verses 1 through 10, Mary Magdalene. She was filled with great joy. If you want to bookend Matthew's gospel, the only two places where we see that phrase, great joy, is at the beginning, when the wise men are at the incarnation, they are filled with great joy. And at the end of the gospel, at the resurrection, Mary and the other Mary are filled again with great joy. We see that in Mary's life. So for this first point, I want us to think about Mary. I want us to think about the reasons for her joy, and by God's grace, hopefully, we'll be reminded of the joy that we can have that's available to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so first off, the first reason of Mary's joy and our joy is that the resurrection upends tragedy. It reverses it. It makes everything sad currently untrue. And ultimately on the day to come, this will be in toto. Everything sad will be made untrue. But just think about Mary on that first Sunday morning. The last time we saw Mary was last week, right? At the end of chapter 27, where she saw Jesus, her best friend, whom she believed was the Messiah, the son of David, the one who had personally delivered her from demon possession, the Gospels tell us. Imagine just the, the horrid darkness she experienced, but Christ delivered her from that, restored her to right relationship with the Lord, walked with her, ate with her, befriended her. 
He loved her more than anybody else ever had, and she loved him more than anybody else she ever knew. Jesus was his best friend, but the end of chapter 27, verse 56, she saw him tortured to death. She saw him stripped naked. She saw a crown of thorns put around his head. She saw him be flogged, his flesh stripped. She saw nails go through his hands and his feet. She saw Jesus give up his last breath. I don't think anything would ever be as dark to her as when she was possessed by demons, but this is a close second. Sadness and despair and hopelessness descended upon her and everybody else that loved and followed Jesus. And then at the very end of 27, the last picture we have of Mary, she's sitting opposite of Christ's tomb, just staring at it. She was hopeless, and she had reason to be hopeless. I think it's easy for us to forget that on that first Sunday morning, it did not begin in celebration. It does for us. You know, for those of us that go to the botanical gardens on the Easter sunrise service, does anybody go to that, by the way, the the Easter sunrise? If you don't, please go. It's so much fun. I mean, if you get your bones out of the bed at 6.30, that's hard. But once you get there, there's lots of orange juice, lots of coffee. You're just, everybody's eating Gibson's donuts, the best donuts in the land. Uh, we're in Narnia, by the way. It's so beautiful. All the flowers have bloomed. We got a bagpiper running around in a kilt playing a bagpipe. It's just awesome. And we hear this glorious message about the resurrected Christ. And we're out there with our neighbors and our friends. It's a great celebration, but it wasn't a celebration for Mary that first morning. They were not going to the graveyard to celebrate the life of Jesus. They were going to the graveyard to eulogize Jesus. They brought spices to cover the smell of his decomposing body. That's what they were out there to do. Hopelessness had set in. And yet, when she got to that tomb and found it empty, her life changed. Your life changed. My life changed. The entire world changed because hope emerged. The resurrection of Christ has changed the world, brothers. And Matthew, in these first four verses, gives us a couple of hints to show us how. First off, in verse 2, we see that an earthquake happened. Now, whether if the angel caused that earthquake or God just made the earthquake happen to coincide with the appearing of the angel, I don't know. Matthew doesn't really tell us. But Matthew's gospel, earthquakes or earthquake-like language usually coincide with God's judgment. All right, and so in the three major places we see, we see God judging demons at the crucifixion. We see, a, we see an earthquake. God is, is judging the idolatrous universe that would have the Son of God crucified. We see judgment there that here at the resurrection of Jesus, there's another earthquake. And what is God doing? He is judging death. That's what God is doing. Brothers, that earthquake is symbolizing to us. It's showing the world that The grave could not hold Christ through his life, death, and then resurrection. Death is dead forever. It has an expiration date on it. That's the good news. The good news is is that death will never be our friend in this life, but for those of us who are united to Jesus Christ by faith, death will never be the end for you. Christ has overcome. So that's the first thing. Second thing, he mentions an angel. Now, usually, (laughs) modern art does us a disservice when we try to picture angels. It's usually an angel baby that we see in paintings or, you know, something that that looks like a a 70s hairband guy. It's just just silly looking, but, but look at Matthew's description. He gives us two descriptors. First off, this angel came from heaven, and he was clothed in lightning. 
and it scared the pants off those battle-hardened guards. Clothed in lightning. Lightning is usually a description that's associated with the presence of God. He's from heaven. What is Matthew showing us? Matthew is showing us that Satan did not win. He is showing us that evil did not overcome. God's plan was not thwarted. Christ rose in victory. We're to be reminded of all the victory in which Christ has accomplished. Think about the desert. Jesus achieved victory over Satan in the desert. At the cross, he achieved victory over sin. And now in his resurrection, he has achieved victory over death. Christ has conquered his and our ancient enemies, Satan, sin, and death. Christ has overcome. He is risen and heaven has followed him. Heaven has broken in. And now through his spirit and dwelt people, the church, you guys, heaven follows you too. That's what Matthew is showing us. And then hilariously, we see, uh, we see these guards. Jesus, who was supposed to be dead, is now alive. And these guards who were alive were now acting like they were dead men. Matthew is showing us in these first four verses that a massive reversal has happened. Light has overcome. Death has given way to life. The grave has given away to the epicenter of the new kingdom. God was silent on Friday, but he had the last word on Sunday is what we see in these first four verses. Christ is risen. It's a historical fact. And when Mary saw him, she knew in that instance that everything sad in her life was made untrue. And it's a pointer for everybody in this room that because Christ rose from the dead, it's our guarantee that everything currently sad will ultimately be made untrue on the day to come. Brothers, do you know that joy? Because it's factual. The other reason for her and our joy is that the resurrection was based in evidence, hard evidence, verses five through six, 11 through 15. I don't know about you, but most of the people in my life who do not believe in the resurrection do not believe in the resurrection because of how the resurrection was presented to them, which is just maddening. But you may have heard it taught this way. Sometimes the resurrection is spoken of or taught as if it's a completely and merely spiritual thing. Like it's a matter of positive thinking. You hear that today. I've heard that recently. That yes, this world is horrible, but there's this really great guy way back when named Jesus, and, and he changed the world back then, but he's dead now. I don't believe in, in miracles. He didn't rise from the dead, but, but he has risen in our hearts and our minds. And, and as we love other people, as he taught us to love, well, we're keeping his spirit alive. That's, the good, that's not good news. And if that's what the resurrection is, I don't believe it either. That's not what Mary believed, I guarantee you. Because anything less then a bodily resurrection doesn't amount to a hill of beans. And I'll tell you why. Because if there wasn't a bodily resurrection, you and I are still in our sins. Paul tells us that Christ was raised from the dead for our justification. If he did not rise from the dead bodily, we're still in our sins. This world is still bound to corruption. Darkness is still here. There is no hope. When you die, you die. You're worm food. That's it. That would not have caused Mary to be filled with joy. The only reason that she was filled with joy was because her faith was found on historical evidence. Brothers, Jesus rose from the dead. Two plus two is four. The sun will rise tomorrow. Jesus rose from the dead. It's history. It's factual. And she had every reason to believe that, and so do we. 
And Matthew presents us three pieces of evidence. The first piece of evidence is the dating of the original text. If you look at verses 11 through 15, this too is very sad. You, we see the profound wickedness of those religious leaders. In verses 11 through 15, those religious leaders, they just heard a testimony from these guards that something weird happened in that cemetery. And the disciples had nothing to do with it. But they refused to believe because, scholars tell us, and if you just kind of look through the text, they did not want to give up their power and their authority. So they didn't want to imagine that there was a crucified and risen Lord walking around. They didn't want that because they wanted their own power and their own authority. So they developed a scheme that we're told about in verse 15. And Matthew says that that scheme was still circulating at the time of his writing. Now that's significant because Matthew's gospel was written about 30 years after the fact, okay? So what that means is Matthew's addressing this gospel to the original generation that saw Jesus alive. So that means then that if if Matthew fudged the numbers, if he said something outrageous and ridiculous, you better believe people would have risen up and said, no, that didn't happen. Matthew's a liar. But they didn't. In fact, we have non-believing historians from back then Um, Philo and Josephus, who don't attest to the resurrection, but do attest to many of the miracles of Jesus Christ and the happenings in the gospel, all within that same generation. Another similar example in 1 Corinthians 15, when the apostle Paul says there were 500 living witnesses to the resurrected Christ, scholars think that some of those 500 are included in that inclusive term we see in verse 10, brothers. Most scholars think that Matthew here or Jesus is talking well beyond those 11 original apostles minus Judas, but to include other disciples, followers, and lovers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, those 500 people that Paul mentions, Paul wrote that letter 15 years after the fact. And so Paul is saying when he's talking about Jesus rising bodily from the dead, he said, if you don't believe me, go ask Frank because he was alive. That's the point. Very significant that all of the people that were around Jesus were still living when these bad boys were being written. Another piece of evidence, the first eyewitnesses were women. Now, I know that y'all have heard the significance of this in probably countless Easter sermons, but the fact remains. The original evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all attest to the fact that women were the original eyewitnesses. Why is that significant? Well, back then, it was a toxic patriarchal society. Women were considered second-class citizens. Their testimony did not hold up in court. It does not matter how smart they were or what they saw or what they heard or how legitimate it was. It was simply not heard in court, particularly someone like Mary Magdalene who had a sordid past, right? So the only reason then that someone would tell it this way was because that's how it actually happened. If you're going to invent a myth, you would not base it off the word of women back then. The only reason that it was recorded this way is because that's how it historically happened. And also think just personally about Mary Magdalene, how honoring and how dignifying it was for her to be the first evangelist. Amazing. That's that with Jesus. He's just turned the world upside down. Now here's another example. Those early eyewitnesses also, they were not gullible people. They weren't gullible. In verse six, Mary had just heard the testimony, the verbal testimony of an angel, okay? But that angel says, okay, Mary, this is why Jesus is not in the grave. He's risen from the dead, but I want you to come and see it with your own eyes. And so Mary went and looked at her with her own eyes and saw that Jesus' body was missing. It's the Thomas principle. 
oftentimes we give Thomas trouble for doubting? I don't think so. Thomas understood the significance and the importance of Jesus rising bodily. For all he knew, all the other disciples just imagined this thing out of despair. He needed to touch Jesus' scars because if a bodily Jesus didn't rise from the dead, none of this matters. And so Mary, she saw that tomb and saw it was empty, but then she got more that she bargained for because as she was going to the disciples, what did she see? She saw the resurrected Christ and she knelt down and wrapped her arms around his feet and worshiped him. She saw him. Then in verse 17, we're also told that some of the disciples doubted. If you're going to invent a story, you're not going to say that the founders of your faith at first doubted. Okay? You're not going to say that. Now, Matthew's not saying that these people weren't believers. He's just saying that not everybody converts from Saul to Paul. Some people have to think it over and mull it over. And that's what apparently happened here. But why is that significant? Tim Keller says that oftentimes people today fall victim to chronological snobbery. (laughs) He says, he goes, we think that people back then just believed in miracles. They weren't smart as we were. They would believe in anything as if our IQs have gotten higher through the ages. So that's nonsense. They were normal people. And a matter of fact, first century Jews back then would have been the last people to believe this. Because just think about it. They had their own worldviews. They had their own system of thought in their religion. Jewish people believed in an end-time resurrection, but they never would have thought in a million years that God would have raised one person in the middle of history. That was well beyond their purview. They would have had trouble believing that just as much as people today have trouble believing that. All right, that, that was beyond a shadow of a doubt that, that God was going to raise everybody up to be judge at the end times, but for him to raise someone up in the middle of history that in time somehow has invaded the present? They weren't thinking that way. And furthermore, if Jesus Christ did rise from the dead in the middle of history, then that means truly then he is the son of God. And we all know how difficult it was for Jewish people to worship a human being willy-nilly. All right, for them to worship Jesus as the son of God, to believe that he walked out of the grave, for their lives to be transformed as they were, for them to endure suffering, for them to endure persecution and horrific deaths, as we see with the early apostles, for the church to expand as it did. They needed a whole lot more than positive thinking. They needed nothing less than a physical resurrected body, and that's exactly what they got. And so Mary was filled with joy because she knew that this was real. Brothers, it is real. It's not a bedtime story. Nor is it an insignificant historical fact. It's not like Abraham Lincoln is the 16th president. That doesn't affect your day. Jesus, who was the son of God, died and rose from the dead. It's changed everything. Because he rose from the dead, that means his word is true. His promises are real. His death was satisfactory. His atonement complete. His obedience perfect. His victory total. That's what it means. And because he is alive, all of those who have faith in him will one day be made alive too. That's why why Paul calls Jesus the first fruits of new creation. It's an agricultural term. The first fruits is showing you what the rest of the fruit is going to look like when it blooms. Jesus is the first fruit of new creation. And as those who are united to him by faith, when Jesus rose from the dead, that's our assurance of what will one day happen to us. And brothers, I'm telling you, if we're still walking around in this life, when that great day happens, the greatest party in the history of the world is going to be right down the street at the Memphis funeral home in that cemetery. 
when we see all of our loved ones raised in glory and we can know for a shadow of a doubt that day is going to happen. Why? Because Christ rose from the dead. Another reason for her joy and our joy is that in verse 10, Jesus calls us brothers. She calls it, he calls us brothers. So Mary sees Jesus in all of his resurrected glory and she worships him. She knew right then and there everything sad was going to be made untrue. Then Jesus looks at her and says, go tell these other disciples the good news. Who are those disciples? Well, a disciple is a follower of Jesus, a lover, knower, follower of Jesus. These disciples, though, were cowards. Their life was in disarray, just like Mary's was moments before. But these guys were even worse because Mary stuck around and watched it all. They got the heck out of Dodge to save their own skin. They abandoned him in his darkest hour. I can't imagine that guilt. Judas killed himself because of it. The other disciples, Peter, who denied Jesus three times, I can't imagine that guilt. But what does Jesus say? He says, Mary, when you see him, tell my brothers to meet me in Galilee. Brothers. Friends, we are like those disciples, except actually we have it worse because we've been walking with him a lot longer than three years. But every single one of us have abandoned him. Every single one of us has returned to the vomit of our own sin. Every single one of us has denied him in our hearts or by word because we were afraid. But Jesus is not afraid to call you a brother. Does that give you joy? That word Galilee is mentioned a couple of times in verses 1 through 10. There's literary significance for that because earlier in Matthew, it's called uh, Galilee of Gentiles. That's its description. And we're about to see here the Great Commission where the early church goes out and, and makes disciples of all nations to the Gentiles. So there's kind of a leeway, but there's something sweeter than just a literary device. Galilee is when those men first met and fell in love with Jesus. That's when they fished together. That's when they ate together. That's when Jesus gathered them up and cared for them and loved them and told them the good news of his kingship and his kingdom. And he says, Mary, tell them to return to that place that they first met me. And of course, the, the first place he went to was the Sea of Galilee, where he met with Peter, the man who denied him three times. And there we see Jesus restore that man and bring him to his family as a brother. Friends, I don't know where you are this morning. You might be overrun with guilt or fear or whatever else, but Jesus looks to you and says, you're my brother and come to me. I don't know if you could ask for greater joy than that. But that's what the resurrection does. It gives us profound joy. Secondly, it also gives us a great purpose. And this is what we see in verses 11 through 16, the great commission of the resurrected Christ. The resurrection has just happened. Jesus has broken the bonds of death. He's burst through that dirty old tomb. He has changed the world and is giving life to everyone who believes. But here's the deal. <laughs> Up until this point, there's only a few people who know about this. How, how's the rest of the world going to figure this out, this good news? I mean, there's about 2 billion people in the world who will never hear the name of Jesus unless someone trained in that linguistic group goes to them as a foreign missionary. It's a problem today. But what was Jesus' answer to that? I'll tell you. 11, 
uneducated, low-class fishermen. That was Jesus' answer to this massive problem. Are you kidding me? I mean, the angel dressed in lightning must have been slack-jawed at that one. Jesus, are you serious? I mean, at least send me. I'm dressed in lightning. These guys just doubted you for heaven's sakes. Are you kidding me? And some of us might be feeling that way too. Jesus, you got the wrong guy. I barely know my Bible. I got a sordid life myself. But just remember, those, those 11 ordinary men, they were transformed by the gospel, by the resurrection, and dwelt by the Spirit, and God used them to turn the world upside down, as is reported in Acts 17. And here's the deal. The gospel is still in the business of turning the world upside down, and the Lord Jesus Christ is still in the business of using ordinary, unworthy men like us to bring it about because it was never about those who were sent. It's always about the one who sins, the Lord Jesus Christ. And brothers, he's given us an amazing, an amazing task, an amazing purpose to make disciples of all nations, spreading his kingdom. So the question is, how in the world are we going to do that faithfully? Really quickly, Jesus tells us three things. First off, we must believe the claims that Jesus makes. This great commission begins with a declaration of the universal sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ. This great commission hangs on that claim. If verse 18 isn't true, it does not matter what is said in verses 19 through 20. But because verse 18 is true, and we know that it is true, why? Because Jesus Christ rose from the dead and he's now at the right hand of his Father. Therefore, verses 19 to 20 are binding to us. What's the claim? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Not some, not a little bit, but all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus is not saying that he now has absolute authority because of his resurrection. All right, so his authority has not become absolute, but rather the spheres in which he exercises it. Jesus is now the one and the only one who mediates God's authority over all things. The Old Testament prepared us for this. The New Testament explains it. Here's just a couple of verses. Jesus is the Daniel 7 son of man who was once humiliated and suffering, but is now the universal king, who according to Ephesians 1 is now at the right hand of God the Father after his ascension, ruling over the cosmos. The one whom Paul says every knee on earth in heaven and under the earth will bow in Philippians 2, and the one in Psalm 2 that says the Father has given to him the nations as a heritage. Jesus has been given all authority, which means that no one else has any authority that matters because Jesus has authority over all things. He has authority over the nations. He has authority over history. He has authority over the demons. He has authority over the princes and the rulers and the presidents. He has authority over you. He has authority over me. The greatest Christological statement made in the Gospels is in verse 18. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, which means two very important things. You and I do not have a right to say no to verses 19 through 20. And sometimes we do. Sometimes I do. What in the world is wrong with me? I have no right to say that to the creator and the ruler of the cosmos. No, or I'll do that later. He's an authority over absolutely everything. It requires our total submission. <laughs> but here's the other thing that it means. You and I have absolutely nothing to worry about. Because the God who loves us enough to become man and die on a cross and rise from the dead three days later is in control of every minute detail of history and your life. 
and he's working everything out for the good of those who love him. And we can believe that that promise is true. Remember, why? Because Christ is risen, which means his word is true and his promises are real. All right, so the first thing that we do is that we believe his claim. Secondly, we obey his command. Now, you've heard this before. There's one imperative, three participles. The imperative is where the oomph, the focus of the command is that Jesus gives us, is to make disciples. That means to make knowers and lovers and followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. The three other verbs are participles which describe the process. Go, baptize, teach. So a good translation is, as you go, make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them all that I've commanded you. All right, so let's just think about those three descriptive words over that main verb, make disciples. First off, go. Jesus does not intend for the world to come to the church, but rather the church to go to the world. I mean, that's what that means. Um, and, and we've seen that to be true. I mean, the world is not lining up at our doorstep, right? We are to be intentional about going to where the would-be disciples are whether if they're young believers or, or wandering believers or new converts. We're to be intentional to go where they are. Now remember, the, the verb is not to go, it's as you go. So Jesus is not commanding everybody in this room to be a foreign missionary. He very well might lead you to be one, but that's not the command. What he is commanding is our lifestyle would be characterized by making disciples. That's where the oomph is. So if you're a dad with four kids and a busy law in the city of Memphis, whatever you, is, whatever you are, whatever you do, wherever you are, make disciples. It doesn't say be perfect. It doesn't say you're going to be Billy Graham. I, again, remember, we are, we are uneducated fishermen. But still, we're to go and make disciples. The second word, baptize. This is not describing how to, make or how to make disciples. We don't make disciples by throwing water on them. All right, this is describing or characterizing the process. So here we have baptism. There's two senses behind baptism. First off, there's a social sense. Baptism is a sign of our entrance into God's family. Right? So whether if you're a, a baptized as a believer or an infant household baptism, it's a sign of our entrance into the covenant family of God. It's like, here's my badge. Here's my, you know, my members only jacket, my baptism. Here's my ring that says that I'm married. Here's my baptism that says that I've been uh, welcomed into the church of God, right? So that means then as Christians, we're not really about church growth. If the church grows, awesome. But we're not going on short-term mission trips trying to gather up a whole bunch of uh, conversions and counting them and telling our congregation and just leaving those converts to be. That, that's not what we're called to do. We're called to make converts, and then we're called to bring them into God's family. We're gathering up sheep and bringing them into God's family. And then there's a spiritual side of it. This is what Paul says in Romans 4. It's a sign and a seal. And what is it sign and seal? It's a sign and a seal that God is our Father through our union to the Lord Jesus Christ who has now risen from the grave by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit that we are God's kids, co-heirs of Christ to an eternal kingdom. And therefore, the Christian life is about figuring out what that means and living it out. So the Christian life is us living out our baptism, which leads to the third and last participle, teaching. Friends, this is a lifelong enterprise. 
Being a disciple of Jesus isn't about being a decision maker. It's about being a follower. It will include making decisions, but ultimately it's about following Jesus. Knowing him, loving him, and following him. And how amazing is it? He gives us a bunch of schmucks like us the great dignity of helping other people do that same thing of where us, with our equal limp, going to the Lord Jesus, figuring out who he is from his word and what it means to know him and to love him and to follow him together. And we get to do that with our kids and our grandkids and our friends and our neighbors. Are you kidding me? Here's a great place to start if you're wondering, how in the world am I going to do this? You have like 25 lessons from the Gospel of Matthew. Did you know that? They're all recorded. And you got handouts too. And in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus gives us five sermons about who he is as king, what his kingdom is all about, and why it's here and what it's doing, and how we're to live as kingdom citizens. It's right there. It's a great place to start. But the point is, Jesus is risen. He's an authority over all things. And he requires nothing short of our submission in this great commission and furthering his kingdom. Do you feel overwhelmed by that? I feel overwhelmed. I mean, if you don't feel overwhelmed, you didn't just hear what I said. I mean, this is crazy. Us, fishermen, uneducated people. Are you kidding me? This is beyond me. And you should feel overwhelmed until we get to the very end, verse 20b, where Jesus says, I will be with you. So that's the last thing that we must do to carry this thing out. We must believe the promise of Christ of those 63 instances where we see Matthew write that word, behold, this is the sweetest one, when Jesus says, behold, I am with you. I am with you always. And I'm with you to the end. I'm with my Father in heaven, but spiritually, by my spirit, I'm with you right now. I'm not going to leave you to your own devices. I'm not throwing you out into the... The wilderness, I'm going with you, Jesus says, and I'm with you in every moment. I'm with you in history. I'm the one that's weaving history together for my glory and your good. I'm with you in every detail in your life. I'm with you in gospel ministry. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 2.17. When when Paul says, Jesus Christ preached to you, Ephesians, well, Jesus had already ascended to be with the Father by this point. When the world is Paul talking about? Paul is talking about it's his spirit who works through his word when we do gospel ministry. It's all contingent upon Jesus. He's the one that teaches. He's the one that convicts. We're not going out there by ourselves. He's going with us, brothers. And he's with us in community. As two and three gather, he's with us presently. He's in this room right now with you. And he's with us to the end. And I'm not sure what your life is like right now or what trials and tribulations you'll experience in the future, but I do know that it will end happily. Because Jesus says here, at the end, you will see me. And I'm going to gather you up as a brother and make you new. And in that moment, you will see all of our feeble attempts of laboring for his name come to full fruition. And you're going to be amazed about how God used your feeble attempts. Justice will flow. Righteousness will reign. Everything sad will be made untrue. And we can know that that day will come because Christ has risen from the dead. Brothers, are you joyless this morning? Think about it. Are you joyless? Do you feel purposeless? Are you afraid for any reason? Are you lonely? Are you overwhelmed? Remember, the tomb is empty. Christ is risen. Death is dead. 
Love has won. Christ has conquered. And in him, you're more than a conqueror too. So let us leave here in the knowledge that Christ is risen. And may we be filled with great joy and great purpose. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for my brothers. I thank you so much for reminding us in this text that you call us brothers. Help us to live in that security. Help us to live in that joy. And may we labor for your name, not to earn your favor, but to live in the wonderful response of it that you have made us family. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.